John chapter 19, I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, This Was to Fulfill the Scripture. Today we come to the central aspect in John's account of Jesus' work, of Jesus' ministry, the whole reason and purpose behind why Jesus took on human flesh, why he lived a perfect life, why he was betrayed into the hands of sinful men, we're coming to that right here, namely his death on a Roman cross. And what we'll see today is that virtually everything that Jesus experienced in the Roman crucifixion, it was predicted and prefigured and prophesied in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament pictures, in the Old Testament poetry, and in the Old Testament prophecy specifically. Now today, there are modern-day prophets. There are modern-day prognosticators. You usually see them opining on the 24-hour news channels, and they're making some type of predictions about some calamity that will befall the human race in the not-too-distant future. They put forward ideas and concepts about crises and catastrophes that are surely going to mark the end of all things. Many of you were around and you lived through that catastrophe known as Y2K. There was all kinds of predictions that when the year turned 2000, that all of a sudden everything was just going to crash. We were going to go back to this subsistence living where we had to go scavenge the woods for roots to eat and berries to swallow. But on December 31st, 1999, when the clock struck midnight, guess what? Nothing happened. And lots of people were left with a lot of MREs they had to consume that they had stockpiled away. About six years later, there was a very well-known, quote-unquote, documentary that was released that uh, was regarding uh, human-caused global warming. I won't say the name of that documentarian, but many of you know who it is. (laughs) Here are some of the climate catastrophes that were predicted in that film that came out in 2006. For one, the filmmaker predicted that in 10 years, by 2016, Mount Kilimanjaro would no longer have any snow on its peaks. I'll inform you that last year, 2022, those who record such things said that, yes, there was still snow on the peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro, and they had eight feet of snow that came down last year. So prediction failed. The filmmaker also said that because of what he called boiling oceans and the melting ice caps, that much of the seaboard on the East Coast and the West Coast, in fact, the entire state of Florida, would be underwater. Well, I called my family in Florida this week. They are still on terra firma, so we we can be thankful about that. Further, he predicted that um, over the next 10 years from the release of this uh, film, that hurricanes would increase in their frequency and also increase in their intensity. Interestingly, um, during that season of 10 years, not one major storm made landfall on the United States. Now, I don't know where you land on human-caused climate change, and that's really not what this is about. The point is, we all make predictions and we all make prophecies that end up not coming true. Um, The reality is, this is the consequence of being human. The consequence of being human is that we make mistakes, we make errors in judgment, we make flaws, but there is someone who can see into the future. That someone can see into the future because he wrote the future, His name is God. And in the scriptures, the Spirit-inspired prophets predict many things that would come long before they ever happened. And many of the things that the prophets predict in the Old Testament, those predictions are regarding this passage that we're studying right now and the events surrounding the cross. This is what makes the Bible the most awe-inspiring, the most unique book in all of human history. There is no other book that has such a detailed predictions and fulfillment of prophecy like the Bible. It's just, it's one of the primary attestations to the divine origin of the Bible. I said earlier that what we're studying today is the central aspect of Jesus's work, his death on a Roman cross. Interestingly, 
Again, a large part of the prophecies about Jesus and his life center on this work, uh, many of which are in our focal passage today. So look with me in your Bible, again, at John 19. We're going to begin reading at the end of verse 16, where the ESV translators have made a paragraph break. This is the God-breathed word of the Lord. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the, other, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In our study through John's gospel, particularly this uh, Holy Week experience, we have noted that there are some differences between John's account and the account of the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are quite a few omissions that John leaves out. He leaves out a lot of the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke include. And reason being, and I've shared with you, is because John was the last gospel writer. This was written maybe even a couple of decades after the previous gospel accounts had already been written. So John assumes you've read those accounts already. There are also some details that John includes that they did not include. And the reason why is because John has a particular theme, John has a particular focus that he wants to continue to put forward in front of us. And in fact, uh, here's the focus of John's record of uh, the crucifixion. John's primary theme in his crucifixion account is the sovereignty of God and the submission of Jesus. This is his primary theme the sovereignty of God over all these details and over all these things, and two, the submission of Jesus to the very will of the Father. John wants us to understand that all these events, down to the very smallest detail, was prescribed in the sovereign mind of the Lord according to his purposes. And further, he wants us to know that Jesus humbly submitted to the will of the Father. He submitted to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. We see him submit to the will of the Father in the time of the trial when he's falsely accused. We even saw him submit last week to the authority of Pilate, authority that Pilate was borrowing from Jesus himself, humbly submitting to the will of the Father. Now, as we consider particularly the sovereignty of God in the events of the crucifixion this morning, it's no wonder that so much of it was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know there are 39 books in the first uh, section of the Bible, um, and those 39 books um, contain really three areas, three genres. The, the Old Testament is not organized so much chronologically as much as it is organized and arranged by genre. In fact, there are three genres of writing in the Old Testament. The first genre is the genre of history. And we see that in Genesis through the book of Esther. The second genre is poetry. We see that from the book of Job through the Song of Solomon. And the final third genre of the Old Testament writings is prophecy. That's Isaiah through Malachi. 
We know this is the way it's arranged uh, simply because you, you look at the first book of poetry in the Old Testament is the book of Job. Well, Job is likely, according to most scholars, the oldest book in our Bible. So why wasn't it put first? Because again, the Old Testament is not arranged chronologically so much as it is raised, uh, arranged by genre. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to consider uh, these books of the Bible and consider how these are portrayed even in our text before us today. Now, it might seem kind of obvious that the specific details of Jesus' life and crucifixion would be predicted in this section of the Old Testament called prophecy. But the reality is all these things are predicted in all three genres, in the history section through what are known as pictures and types, in the poetry section, in the Psalms and Proverbs, and even, of course, in the prophecy section. The entire Old Testament scriptures, all three genres, are prophetically fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want us to consider it, and it's through the grid of these through genres of the Old Testament that we're going to approach our focal passage today. I could bring in a lot of other passages from the New Testament that are fulfilled uh, prophecy, but I want to just kind of focus in on this one passage we're looking at today. Eleven verses, let's consider them together. The first of all, I want us to see that Jesus' death on the cross, as portrayed in this passage, is the perfect mirror of Old Testament pictures. This is the grid of the history section of the Old Testament. Again, history of the Old Testament begins in the book of Genesis. Uh, so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible were penned by Moses, and it begins at the very beginning of the human race, right? In the beginning, God created. So you have creation, you have the creation of man, you have the fall of man there in the garden, and then uh, Moses chronicles the history of the, of the people of God, Abraham's call, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally the book of Genesis concludes with Joseph and his uh, rise to power in Egypt. You move to the book of Exodus, you've transitioned some 400 years, and there the Hebrew people have grown in population in Exodus, and they've moved from a favored status because of Joseph to a unfavored status. They are now slaves. They are in bondage, and they are doing backbreaking work at the bequest of Pharaoh. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have uh, the the exodus of the Hebrew people from their enslavement, and God delivers through Moses the law. The law will give the sacrificial system that they were to observe. The law would give the priestly line and all the priests were supposed to accomplish, and the law would give how the people of God were to live together in community. As the history section of the Old Testament continues, you move into the time of the judges, and then you move into the time of the kings, where Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. Give us a king, God, like everybody else. Well, God honored their uh, unwise request, and so you have the periods of the kings. And that leads in the history section all the way to the deportation to Babylon, when they were taken captive by Babylon and carted some 900 miles away through the desert. And then the book of his, books of history conclude with the, uh, the people of God coming back to the promised land and re-inhabiting it and re-establishing it. So you have the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and that's how the history section of the Old Testament closes out. Interestingly, the history section of the Old Testament pictures and portrays the crucifixion of Jesus. It's absolutely Incredible. In fact, I want us to consider five pictures or five types, as they're often referred to, from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in our focal passage today. The first one is this. I want us to think about the location outside the walls, the location of the crucifixion that took place outside the walls. It's actually a fulfillment of Old Testament types and pictures. Verse 17 begins just simply, and he went out. This may seem like an insignificant detail, but John records it for a very specific purpose. Jesus was not crucified. He was not executed within the city proper of Jerusalem. They took him out. Reason being, it was Roman law. It was Roman law that no crucifixion would happen within the bounds of a city. They had to do the crucifixion outside the boundaries of that city. So he went out of the city. 
He went out of the walls. He went out of the gate. It says in verse 17 that they took him to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. This is what the word Golgotha means, skull. The Latin word for skull is calvarius, from which we get our English word calvary. So calvary means literally skull. Golgotha means skull. Why is this place called the skull? Well, most scholars believe it's because the mountain where Jesus would or the hill where Jesus would have been crucified, looked something like a skull. In fact, modern uh, folks, this is a a current-day picture of what people believe is the place of the skull. And I don't know if you can see to the right there. Let's zoom in a little bit. On the right, we can see those kind of eye sockets and the nose, and that's something like a skull. This may be the location where Jesus was crucified. But this is outside the city. This is outside the gates. This is outside the walls. Why? Well, it's not just that um, this was Roman law, but because Jesus was fulfilling pictures of the Old Testament. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there are many sacrifices that are required and prescribed by the law for the people to observe and to practice. Um, Several of those sacrifices, the sin offering, for instance, it was required that once the animal was sacrificed, In the temple, it was to be taken outside the walls to be burned and to be consumed. This sin offering was prefiguring the ultimate sin offering that would be accomplished by Jesus outside the walls. Uh, If you'll remember back in John chapter 10, a passage we studied at the beginning of this year, Jesus was in the temple and he was teaching and he made what the Jews interpreted as a blasphemous statement. He said, I and the Father are one. What did they do? They picked up stones right there in the temple to stone him. But Jesus would not be executed by stoning in the temple. Why? Because that would not uh, be a portrayal of this Old Testament picture. He was crucified, John says here in chapter 19, near the city, not in the city. He had to be sacrificed outside the walls of the city as the ultimate and final sin offering for the people. The author of Hebrews makes this obvious connection in the New Testament when he writes these words in chapter 13. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. See that? They're killed and sacrificed and the blood is shed at the temple or at the tabernacle, but their bodies are taken outside the camp. Then he makes this connection in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus, friends, is the perfect and final sin offering for humanity. And that is pictured and that is portrayed in the history books of the Old Testament. But not only do we see him being the ultimate sacrifice for sin because of his shedding of blood outside the walls, but next notice this, the bearing of the wood. The bearing of the wood. Verse 17, it says that he was, quote, bearing his own cross. Literally, the Greek uh, translation would be he was carrying the cross himself. This would have been the horizontal wooden cross beam that he would have carried uh, up what's known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, to the place of crucifixion. And there that wooden crossbeam would be attached to the post that was already there. And that's what he would be crucified on. There's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament, in the history section, in the book of Genesis, that portrays Jesus bearing the wood of the sacrifice. It's when God told Abraham to take Isaac, his one and only begotten son, up Mount Moriah, the very location of where Jerusalem would be built later. He took Isaac up Mount Moriah, and look what the Bible says, this detail in Genesis 22.6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. Isaac, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus, bore the wood upon which he would be sacrificed in obedience to the Father. And that is a figure, that is a type, that is a picture of Jesus bearing the wood of his own sacrifice for us. 
Interestingly, there's another type of Christ in that episode in Genesis 22. You see, because if you'll remember, God stayed the hand of Abraham and there was a ram caught in the thicket to serve as the substitute for Isaac. But there would be no substitute for Jesus. Jesus would be the substitute. He was the substitute not only for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all their descendants. Friends, he was the substitute sacrifice for you. Jesus fulfilled the pictures of the Old Testament history. Here's the third thing I want us to consider. Number three, the inscription that Pilate wrote. Pilate had inscribed on a placard, on a sign that he then affixed to the cross, these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, how did the Jews respond to this sign? They said, no, 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 don't write that, Pilate. Right, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus said he was the king of the Jews. Don't say that he was the king of the Jews. And what did Pilate say? What I've written, I've written. Why is that? I personally think, and this is a little conjecture, I think it was just one last jab at the Jews who had manipulated him over the last few hours. It was one last dig. Here's your king, Jews, this bloodied, beaten, frail man hanging on a Roman cross. Here's your king, Jews. But God is sovereign over every detail, even the inscription Pilate had written on the sign. You see, God is ruling so that the true honor, the true identity of his son, Jesus, would be proclaimed to all. Pilate, this representative of the most worldly and the most powerful kingdom in the world, writes clearly, Jesus is the king of of the Jews. Think about it. What does a king do? A king conquers, a king provides, a king rules, and a king brings peace. What did Jesus do through his work on the cross? Well, as the king, he conquered our enemy, the devil. He provided forgiveness for our sins. He rules over our hearts, and he has made peace between God and man. All on the cross. Jesus is the king. When Jesus' ancestor, David, was king, Nathan the prophet came to David and delivered to David what's known as the Davidic covenant, the promise of God for David. Here's where the promise is recorded in 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his, that's Jesus' kingdom, forever. See, Jesus is the descendant of David whose throne would be established not for a temporary rule or reign, but an eternal rule, an eternal reign. He is the fulfillment of the promise to David, and he shall reign forever and ever, as the song goes. But Jesus is not only king of the Jews. This next picture from the history of the Old Testament I want us to see is this. Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world. So Pilate had this inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and John says it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic is a sister language of Hebrew, which is the ancient language of the Jews. Uh, Therefore, Aramaic, it's really the language that the Jews spoke after the They came back from the Babylonian captivity up until this time of Christ. Aramaic is the language of revelation. It's the language of religion. Latin is the language that the Roman military spoke. It's the language of power. Greek is the language that was used in the academia. So it's the language of wisdom, the language of knowledge. And so what is being communicated here in Pilate, not just writing it in the language of the military or the language of religion, but also the language of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what he's saying, unbeknownst to him. Jesus is the savior of every language. Jesus is the savior of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. But friend, because he's writing it in the language of religion and the language of of power and the language of academia, he's saying it's not just nations, it's every class. Whether you're blue collar or white collar, whether you're labor or management, Jesus is your savior. And this is the promise of the Old Testament even. 
Notice how the Bible put it in Genesis chapter 22, another passage from the history section. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that came to Abraham. He says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I want you to circle those words, all the nations, not just the Hebrew nation, not just the Jewish nation, not just the American nation. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through one of Abraham's offspring. It's the Apostle Paul who in Galatians chapter 3 informs us that this term offspring here in Genesis 22, it's not plural, it's singular. In other words, God's not making the promise that all of your millions of offspring, Abraham, are going to impact the planet. He says there's one solitary single offspring who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, is the fulfillment of this picture in the Old Testament. But here's the fifth one I want us to consider, and that is the clothing he wore. The clothing that Jesus wore. John describes what we understand to be the undergarment of Jesus. It's called a tunic. The tunic. He had describes it with these words, but the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. There was, this article of clothing was just one piece. There were no seams. I thought about my wardrobe this week. I tried to think of things I might have that are seamless. I thought about my shirts. No, they all have seams. My pants, no, they've got seams. Uh, though sometimes I'm breaking out of those seams. I thought about, you know, my uh, other things that I wear, but maybe if I had some socks that Granny had woven from wool, those might be seamless. I would venture guess that most of the clothes you own and that you wear, it all has seams. So why would John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, want to bring to our attention that the tunic, the undergarment that Jesus wore, was seamless? There were no seams. It was all woven, one large piece with four holes for the head, for the arms, and for the body. Well, there's a very important reason why, because this seamless garment was prefigured in the Old Testament. The high priest over Israel was required to wear what's known as a linen ephod. That linen ephod, according to the law, was supposed to be seamless. It was one woven garment. Look at Exodus chapter 28. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. This is just a lovely note, I think, from the Holy Spirit to let us know that this office of the high priest that God prescribed in the book of Exodus would be perfectly and completely fulfilled by Jesus even at the cross. Do you understand what the word priest means? We hear that word. We may even say that word. We're familiar with that word, but we might not even know what the word priest means. Here's a little history lesson on the word priest, particularly in English. In the Roman Catholic tradition, they often call priests pontiffs. The pontifex maximus is the, the pope. He's the supreme priest, the maximum pontiff. The word pontiff or pontifex means bridge. Have you ever heard of a pontoon? pontoon is a bridge. Pontifex means bridge. Jesus is the ultimate pontiff. He's the ultimate bridge. The Old Testament priests were supposed to be a bridge between man and God, their sinfulness and his holiness. But here comes the ultimate great high priest Jesus wearing the seamless garment, and he is the true bridge builder between God and man. These are all pictures from the history section of our Old Testament that are perfectly portrayed in the Bible, even in this passage before us today. In fact, there's one I didn't even mention. I'm not going to go into it in detail because I preached a whole sermon on it back in March of 2022. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nick at night, and he tells Nicodemus these words in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this episode? If you'll remember, it's when the venomous vipers were attacking the Hebrew people, and they were saying, We're all dying, the snakes are killing us, and so. Uh, God instructs Moses to put a bronze serpent up on a staff and hold it up. And whoever looks at the staff, 
who looks in faith, believing they will be healed from the serpent's bite, they would be healed. And I told you in that sermon a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, that when you look to Christ hanging on the cross, when you look at his sacrifice that he's accomplished for you, the viper's bite of sin, of temptation that has killed us as a people, you can look and live when you look by faith. So these are just some of the pictures from the Old Testament history books that show us Christ on the cross. Well, let's move from the history section of the Old Testament to the poetry section. And what we see in Jesus on the cross is that Jesus, Jesus excuse me, is the purest meaning of Old Testament poetry. Jesus is the purest meaning and fulfillment of Old Testament poetry. I don't know about you, but whenever I took English Lit, poetry was the one segment that I struggled with. I would read poems, and I'm like uh, scratching my head. What in the world is this supposed to mean? And I would try to figure out the meaning. What is the, the, the meaning behind this prose that this author is writing? And it usually wasn't until the teacher finally said, okay, you knuckleheads, here's what he means. And they're like, oh, now I see. It's clear. Duh, right? Well, what is the purest meaning of the Old Testament poetry? What is the true meaning of poetry? Again, the poetry section of the Old Testament is Job through Song of Solomon. It's been said that this is the, the meaning of those books in the Old Testament, that Job uh, shows Jesus as the mediator between God and man, that Psalm, Psalms show us that Jesus is our song in the night, that Proverbs describes Jesus as our wisdom for life, that the book of Ecclesiastes depicts him as our meaning for living, and Song of Solomon shows Jesus as the author of all love. But from our passage today, I want us to consider how some poetry, some song lyrics of the Old Testament are portrayed and put forward here in our focal passage today. We're going to look at three of them together. The first one is this. We can see it in the nails driven. We can see poetry and the true meaning of Old Testament poetry in the nails that were driven. Sometimes crucified criminals were affixed to a cross by ropes. You've likely seen drawings like that. The criminals were affixed there to those crossbeams with ropes. Sometimes they were affixed to the cross with nails. Now, in our focal passage, John doesn't specifically say that he was crucified with nails, but if you turn the page to John chapter 20, notice what uh, Thomas says in his time of doubting. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So what the executioners would have done when they would have affixed Jesus to this Roman cross is they would have driven long spikes through his hands, likely through his wrists, and they would have taken his feet and placed one over the other and driven one single spike through both feet into the wood of the post, and there they would hang Jesus to die. A thousand years before Jesus died on a cross, and hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians and then perfected by the Romans, David wrote poetically about the piercing of hands and feet in crucifixion. Notice what Psalm 22, verse 16 says They have pierced my hands and feet. What else could David have been referring to here? What else could he have been writing about in this poetry? You know, some poets are inspired in their writings. Sometimes you hear a song, you think that is a very poignant way to put that idea. But there has never been poetic inspiration like this kind of poetic inspiration because it wasn't just human inspiration. It was divine inspiration. A thousand years before they pierced the hands and feet of Jesus, David in his poetry wrote about it. He was describing in exact detail exactly how his descendant Jesus would be affixed to the cross. But we see also in the poetry not only nails driven, but garments divided. Garments divided. One of the perks, if you want to call it that, of being a Roman executioner is you got to pillage the remaining possessions of those executed criminals. It seems from the passage that there were actually four soldiers who took part of Jesus' crucifixion, and they pillaged all that Jesus owned at that point, which was just 
the clothes on his back. Notice what John says in verse 23. They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Now, historians tell us that the traditional Jewish male would have had these parts of his wardrobe. He would have had a head covering. He would have had a belt. He would have had his coat that covered his tunic, and then he would have had his sandals. We already have commented on the fact that the tunic was the undergarment of those things. That was all one woven piece. And so here, each of these soldiers got something. There's four of them. One of them got the head covering. One of them got the belt. One of them got the coat. And one of them got the sandals. But they gambled over the tunic. Why? Because it was one woven garment. It was not easily torn. So the text says that they cast lots. And in fact, it is here that John says this is in fact a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, namely Old Testament poetry. Look at Psalm 22 again, verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, do you think the soldiers, these pagan Roman executioners had ever read any Hebrew poetry? Unlikely. In fact, I would say, no, they haven't. They didn't know that this is what David had written a thousand years earlier, but here they are under their own volition doing exactly what God said they were gonna be doing a thousand years before through the pen of David. They fulfilled it perfectly. And that leads to the next one that we see from the Psalms, and that is shame and dishonor. Shame and dishonor. I want you to think about the consequence of this simple statement that John makes in verse 23. They took his garments. I mentioned earlier that the tunic was the undergarment. What does that mean? His coat, his belt, his undergarment, his head covering, his sandals, all that was stripped off Jesus before they nailed him to the cross. Jesus was hanging before the world naked. This is shame. This is dishonor. This is embarrassment for our Savior to be naked before this pagan world. But this is exactly what the poet predicted would happen. He said in Psalm 69, verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. The reality is this, different details of Jesus's crucifixion are all through the poetry of the Old Testament. I've just shown you three that are clear in our focal passage for this morning. But notice some of the others. These are all fulfillments that Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection that are all specifically predicted in the Psalms. Here's the list. Psalm 2.1 says that Jesus would be persecuted by rulers. Psalm 41.9 says he'd be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 109 verse 4 says he would pray for his adversaries. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Next week in our focal passage, we'll see that it predicted Jesus would be thirsty. He would be dehydrated, just like Psalm 69.3 says. Psalm 69.21 says that he would be given sour wine to drink. We'll see that next week. Psalm 22.17 says that his bones would not be broken. We'll see that next week. We'll also see next week in our passage that they pierced his side, and out of his side came blood and water. What is this? This is an indication of a gathering of fluid in the membrane surrounding the heart. It's referred to as pericardial infusion. So when the sword came up into Jesus' side, it punctured his side, it punctured that membrane and punctured his heart, and out came a mixture of blood and fluid, blood and water, literally a broken heart, which is exactly what Psalm 22.14 says would happen. Psalm 22.7 describes the scorn of the crowd that he would receive. Psalm 22.1 says at the very beginning of that psalm, an exact quotation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31.5, another exact quotation, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now you may notice that many of these predictions are found in Psalm 22. It's been said that Psalm 22 is so precise 
in its exact detail of the crucifixion of Jesus, it's almost like David had a time machine, flew forward a thousand years, observed the crucifixion of his descendant, and came back a thousand years earlier and wrote down what he saw. But we know time machines are fiction. Back to the future is not true. But I'll tell you what's not fiction, a sovereign God overseeing every detail of the crucifixion of his son. He's ruling and he's reigning. From before the foundation of the world, the divine Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit took counsel together before creation that a means of displaying the glory, the mercy, the love, the grace, and yes, even the justice of their nature would be for the second person of the Trinity to endure Roman crucifixion. And it happened, just as they purpose. Well, that's poetry. We've considered history. That leads to the third genre of Old Testament scripture. Jesus is the precise manifestation of Old Testament prophecy. I want to highlight four ways Jesus, with precision, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in our focal passage today. The first way is this. He was led. He was led. The text simply says, so they took Jesus. Now, according to history, uh, typical crucifixion victims were absolutely terrified of the ordeal they were about to go through. Crucifixion was very common. They would see crosses litter the landscape of the Roman Empire. And if a particular criminal, again, a non-Roman citizen, only non-Romans were crucified, if they were convicted of a capital crime and they were sentenced to death by crucifixion, the sheer terror and fear would grip them. So much so, there are records of crucifixion uh, victims who are being not led to the cross, but they are being driven to the cross. They are being prodded. They're being whipped on their way to be crucified. Some even tied up and dragged to the cross. Jesus wasn't dragged to his cross. He wasn't prodded. He wasn't whipped. He wasn't forced to the cross. He was led to the cross. In fact, all three other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say just that. He followed them to the cross. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah Isaiah 53 7 predicted this detail he was led as a lamb to the slaughter I can tell you as a veteran hog farmer you don't lead hogs anywhere (laughs) they won't follow you you have to prod them with an electric shocker get them to go where you want them to go we had about 50 cows on our farm you don't lead cows You drive cattle. Sheep are different. Sheep will follow. And Jesus followed. He wasn't dragged. He wasn't forced. He wasn't whipped. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Secondly, he was left. He was left. Verse 25 tells us this detail from John only. None of the other gospel writers tell us this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women by the cross of Jesus as he hung there dying. The text also says somewhat cryptically, and the disciple whom Jesus loved was there beside them. John is referring to himself. So John is there at least at some point by the cross. Here's my question. Where are the other men? Where are all the men? You brave, strong men. Where are you? Peter, where are you? You said you'd never abandon him. You said you'd never leave him. Even if all the others abandon you, Jesus, I'll never do it. He wasn't there. Why not? Because it was prophesied he would not be there. Notice what Zechariah 13, 7 says. They all left. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Did they strike the shepherd? Oh, yes, they struck struck him. They did strike the shepherd multiple times, and what happened to his sheep? One by one, they scattered. Jesus 
was left. Here's a third manifestation of Old Testament prophecy. He was with lawbreakers. Verse 18 again, there they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Obviously, these two malefactors are there being crucified because they've been found guilty of breaking some Roman law. Matthew and Mark refer to these two criminals with the same exact word that John used to describe Barabbas in his gospel account. So likely these two individuals on either side of Jesus are insurrectionists like Barabbas was. They're uh, people who are trying to overthrow Roman occupation and they're guerrilla fighters, perhaps even co-conspirators of Barabbas. And this is an exact fulfillment of what the Bible said in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12. It says this, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Just as Psalm 22 seems to be almost like an eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion, if you go and read Isaiah 53 again, look at it through that lens. It's like Isaiah was right there witnessing all the things that were happening to Jesus. Again, time doesn't permit us to cover all the details of the Old Testament prophetic witnesses, but I want us to consider one more. He was the lamb. Jesus was the lamb. You see, the reality is that the bloody death of Jesus by crucifixion is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. In fact, we saw earlier that Isaiah said in verse 7 of chapter 53 specifically, he was led like a lamb to slaughter. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover requirement that a lamb would be slaughtered and the blood of that lamb would be spread over the doorpost to save from the destroyer. He was the lamb who would be sacrificed to make atonement for sin. All these things pointed to Jesus. Interestingly, we also have the exact same prediction by the last Old Testament prophet. Do you know who the last prophet of the Old Testament era was? It wasn't Malachi. It was John the Baptist. And notice what this last prophet of the Old Testament era said when he saw Jesus coming toward him. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, this morning I've gone through, some in depth, some just mentioning, 25 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus specifically fulfilled at the cross. That's phenomenal. People who do such things, by that I mean math people, numerologists, prognosticators, and those who kind of consider these probability numbers, they have considered the odds. What are the odds if one person fulfilled not 25 like I shared this morning and not even 300 like our uh, all predicted in the Old Testament, just 15. What are the odds of one person exactly fulfilling just 15 of the Old Testament predictions and prophecies about Messiah? Here's the chances that they come up with. They've calculated it to be one in, well, I don't even know what number that is. That's a one with 80 zeros behind it. Some of you may be like me and you watch Forensic Files. And so the forensic specialists who look for DNA, when they find it in a crime scene or on a victim, forensic specialists will take that and the prosecution will use the DNA evidence when they'll seek to find a, a criminal guilty. And it'll, it's irrefutable if you are convicted with DNA. But here's the DNA probability. If they find your DNA at a crime scene, there is a one in one billion chance that it belongs to anybody else. How many people are on the planet? About eight billion. So if I was a criminal, I'd say, hey, there's at least seven other people this might belong to. Don't convict me. But they don't do that because it's ironclad proof. You did it. Uh, one in one billion, that's nine zeros. The chances of Jesus fulfilling 15 prophecy, that's one in 80 zeros. It's absolutely impossible. But yet he did it. And not just 15, not just 25, over 300 specific detailed prophecies Jesus fulfilled. What does this prove? It proves at least two things. Number one, it proves 
that the Bible we have in our hands is of divine origin. There is no other book. There is no other writing. There is no sacred writ that has the fulfilled prophecies like the Bible. But here's the other thing it proves this morning, friends. It proves that Jesus is the promised Messiah of God. It proves that Jesus is the only Savior. As I come to a close this morning, I want to just point out one more prophecy from the Old Testament. In fact, this is the very first one. And it's not a prophecy from the pen of Moses or from one of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's from God himself. God made this prediction as he pronounced the curse on the serpent. And notice what the Bible says in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the proto evangelium, the first gospel, the first good news, and God himself is the one who pronounced it there in the garden. And what is he saying? That there will come a descendant. There will come a descendant from the seed of the woman, from Eve, one of your children, will be bruised by Satan. Was Jesus bruised by Satan? Absolutely he was, by the hands of wicked and bloodthirsty men, but he was bruised by Satan. But the other promise is this, that the seed of the woman would crush under his foot the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Where? On the cross. Christ destroyed Satan at the cross. He defeated the serpent. He hung there, and you thought he was shame and dishonored. No, the Bible says that it was Satan who was dishonored at the cross. He was made a mockery because Christ took the punishment for our sins. Jesus, friends, has the final word. Jesus the king crushed the head of the serpent. And here's where I want to leave that. He did that for you. He did that for you. That was your cross. That was your death. That was your wrath that Jesus took in your place. And so, friend, if you've never done this, look to Jesus who's been attested by the scriptures that he is the son of God. Look to Jesus who has been attested by the prophets that he is the sacrificial lamb for sin. Look to Jesus and repent. Turn from the lordship and rule of your own life and believe in what Christ has done for you, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus raised to new life to provide life for all who will believe in him. That leads to my last thought. The fulfilled scripture of the cross not only proves the divine origin of the Bible, but the exclusive provision of salvation through Jesus.